Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. From Canada Land, this is Apo. Hi, I'm Sandy Garosino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary. We're back from our time off for the first episode of our fall season. And it seems like the government also took some time off with us. But unlike the government, we're back. We're going to look at what the fall may have in store. A new finance minister who is Christian Freeland. Because honestly, who else was there? The very unlikely possibility of a snap election and what there is to gain from that. A second wave of COVID-19 that might plunge us all into a deeper deficit. Or, you know, social darkness. <laughs> and the shitstorm political drama south of the border, and what another Trump administration could mean for Canada. Picture me looking stage left into the distance. <laughs> So let's start with the very recent past. Today, I have asked the Governor-General to prorogue Parliament, which must happen before any government can present a throne speech. Jen, what does it mean to prorogue the government? Normally, prorogation of a parliament is an ordinary procedural task simply by which Parliament goes home. At the end of a session, governments are prorogued. However, it is an ability that the government has to prorogue parliament for its own gain. For example, in the midst of scandal, um, this would be uh, considered an abusive prorogation of parliament. The first time that this was used, I think, was in 1873 when Sir John A. Macdonald prorogued parliament in order to stop uh, parliament from looking into uh, the Pacific scandal, which was to do with sort of the building of the Canadian Pacific Railway. You know, in 2002, uh, Chrétien prorogued parliament in the midst of ad scam. You know, I think you had uh, Dalton McGuinty proroguing his provincial parliament amid scandals in Ontario. 
a slightly different abuse of prorogation was back in 2008 when Stephen Harper prorogued it in order to stop the Liberals and the NDP forming a coalition government. That was a really abusive use of it. So what we have Justin Trudeau doing here is proroguing Parliament kind of for no great reason um, in the midst of the We Scandal committee investigations, which will halt further uh, inquiries into the We Scandal for the time being, allow him to dissolve Parliament and then to bring Parliament back, he says, on September 23rd for a throne speech. After that throne speech, there will be a confidence motion within the House, at which point, if the opposition parties lose confidence in the government to carry forward with what it sets out in the throne speech, they can actually call another election. And what's different here and what's different, what was different in 2008 is is it's really a premature cutting off of the session. Yeah, this this would be the more the more traditional example of an abusive use of prorogation. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be more in line with what we saw Chrétien do or um, Johnny McDonald do, which is uh, cutting off parliament just as it's starting to get to the meat of the scandal. What we also saw was that the the recent examples these are these are minority government situations right because a, because a government that's in a majority doesn't really doesn't really need to exercise this method really to get themselves out of trouble it's not just used in minority situations but yes it is a handy tool to have in a minority situation for sure yeah. i would also note that the history of prorogation doesn't tend to favor people who use it as a tactic johnny mcdonald had to resign after he used it Ad scam took down the liberals. Um, McGinty had to resign after he used it. Harper seemed to have gotten away with it. But I think that that uh, example of the use was a little bit different. But it's not, you know, if you're a broken government in the midst of a scandal, it doesn't tend to look good. And if we were to look at Canadian history, we would say it wouldn't be uncommon for a prime minister to be forced to resign or be booted out by his caucus or whatever after using it as a tactic. At the same time, it has been um, so rare, and it and it has tended to be a minority government situation. So you've got a government that's already tenuous, and we will see. Um, the question about whether or not we're going to be going to an election in 2020 will depend on whether the government stands or falls on its throne speech. So that's going to depend on what decisions the other parties make. And probably, I would imagine, the NDP might be, they're the ones that are going to be making their strongest calculations right now. Jen, what's your take on each of the parties and how, what their calculations are going to be about whether or not they're support? the throne speech. Well, first I want to go back. I want to I want to spool back for one second in order to answer that question because I think there's actually two motivations to prorogue parliament here. One, of course, is to change channels on the we scandal. I, I think that that's pretty obvious. But I think that there's actually another motivation, and that is this liberal government is coming out of a pandemic, an enormous crisis, and I think that they see this as an opportunity to impose extreme or radical financial and social change on the country. They're seeing this as an opening. Unfortunately, they didn't really get elected to do that. My feeling, my intuition here is telling me that the the scope of what they plan to do goes well beyond simple response to COVID and is going to deal with much more fundamental issues within um, Canadian culture and the economy. Such as? 
widespread childcare, mm-hmm. high taxes on the rich, like re- stuff that really goes beyond stuff that we talked about during the last election. And I think mm-hmm. that there will be a legitimate concern about whether or not they're exceeding their democratic mandate, considering, you know, they lost a million votes in the last election. They, they're a minority government. They didn't run on some of the things that I think that they're planning on announcing. And I think that by proroguing government and then holding a throne speech and then throwing the ball back into the opposition's court, it's a way of sort of retroactively claiming a degree of democratic legitimacy in order to do mm. some of these radical things. And, you know, it's quite clever, right? Because it basically says, well, no, we didn't run on instituting these programs or doing all these things. But, you know, it was a crisis. And if and if it was really such a problem, then why didn't the opposition dissolve parliament and hold an election back when we gave them a chance? Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's I think that that's actually the strategy at play here. That's a very interesting strategy. And also the change at finance would be, and certainly we're seeing some of those signals from things that Christian Freeland um, has been yeah. saying. So I think you're right that we are we are seeing signals of that kind. That then sort of leads into my response to your original question. Mm-hmm. What, what do I think the parties are going to do? Well, this is why it's a little bit of a dirty way to gain backwards democratic legitimacy for these kinds of changes, because if I'm looking at the numbers, you know, the odds that the NDP isn't going to support the Liberal government for like a radical program of expansion of spending and expansion of social programs are nil, right? <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. like, of course they will. The conservatives don't have the votes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that even if the NDP did have some qualms about some of this stuff, I don't think that they have the coffers ready to actually run another election. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a done deal. Mm-hmm. Where is Aaron O'Toole in this calculation? And I would also ask, what is the Bloc's calculation here? My sense is that Aaron O'Toole might want more time because what his big job is, is going to be to establish some kind of presence. He's got to take the 905 in Ontario. He's got to get that greater Toronto area, metro Toronto area. He's got to get votes there. He's got to get seats there or else it's just second verse, same as the first. So do you think he's ready to go? Uh, I do. For two reasons. One, I think that the Conservatives have a lot of money in the bank. Two, I think that actually O'Toole might benefit from a snap election because he hasn't been framed as anything to people in Canadian households. You know, is he a social conservative? How social conservative? How does he feel about blah, blah, blah. all that stuff is still kind of a, a, a an unknown with Aaron O'Toole, which, you know, in the fire of an election campaign, it'll, it really does give him this opportunity to establish his own brand and presence without a lot of baggage. Having said that, there's another way of looking at this, which is that everything that he has done leading up to this moment has been in the context of the leadership race where he was really pushing hard on a more social conservative messaging, the whole take Canada back, all of that sort of thing was to uh, build support on the right flank of the conservative party. So for the last year, we've been hearing Aaron O'Toole on the right, within seconds of him winning the leadership, he instantly started to pivot to the center and began a radically different form of messaging. So I think that he, at this point, might be more stuck with the messaging that gave him the leadership of the party rather than some brand new Aaron O'Toole that nobody has seen yet. 
maybe, but I doubt it for two reasons. One is that uh, people weren't that checked in to the leadership race. I don't think it really moved the needle. Mm-hmm. And it certainly didn't define Aaron O'Toole among the electorate. I mean, I think, I think his name recognition is still laughably low. Secondly, I don't think that the quote, take Canada back or doing some of the things that he did, standing up for the John A. McDonald statues, that's not going to put off red Tories. That's not going to scare people who are kind of centrist away. It might not win the 905, though. Who knows? I sort of think that if, if you're pinning your plans to paint Aaron O'Toole as scary, alt-right, blah, 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 that's not the strongest evidence that you could probably muster. Anyway, I think that he would probably benefit from a snap election more than uh, people probably realize. But that being said, it's a bit of a academic debate because I just don't think there's going to be a snap election. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the odds that any of these opposition parties are going to trigger a snap election in the midst of what is likely to be a nasty second wave of COVID is pretty small going in. Yeah. And also consider for the conservatives the opportunity that they're being given. If you see, you know, quote unquote, corrupt Justin Trudeau putting out all of these spending programs, some of which will be of dubious value or worth, you have like fodder. Right? <laughs> you have beautiful opposition fodder that you can use to build up your party as being, you know, the party of sane fiscal blah, 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 blah. We, we have to assume that, that, that there's going to be more scandals about spending. Like there's already been so many just over the summer, right? Very soon, September 23rd is when Parliament resumes and all this crystal ball gazing will be over. We'll have the answer. I'd like to start by saying uh, how much I have uh, been grateful to work with Bill Morneau. And that takes us actually to the appointment of Christian Freeland and the exit of Bill Morneau. And I actually see that as being more than just a we-related issue. I think you're absolutely right that when the government had to shovel out hundreds of billions of dollars on a moment's notice, there was no possible way to conduct the kind of due diligence that anybody would normally expect. And that means that there's going to be, I think, it's entirely foreseeable that we're going to see more we-type spending fiascos. And how convenient is it that the government can just pin that on Bill Morneau? Oh, that was then, this is now, now we have a new finance minister. Effectively, we washed ourselves clean of all of that. And I I see that as being one of the the big rationales for the change, not just the issues that Morneau found himself entangled in. And so I'm very interested to see Christia Freeland's emergence here. And I was also fascinated over the summer by the controversy. Oh, she doesn't have this experience or she she isn't she doesn't have that experience, which was pretty laughable given some of the finance ministers that we've had in the past. But what's Christia Freeland inheriting here? What is she inheriting? She's inheriting a portfolio that Bill Morneau kind of left in the cloud. Remember, Bill Morneau wasn't just implicated in the Wee scandal, but it's also pretty clear by the leaks in the media that came out that um, he objected to what we think is sort of spending or excessive spending um, on, on behalf of the Trudeau government. That is the, at least the way that the leakers are framing Morneau's departure, which indicates to me that like Trudeau and the prime minister's office is presenting itself or trying to frame itself as being these extreme anti-anti-austerity crusaders. They're setting us up for um, a very spend-happy budget. You know, I think a lot of people were talking about, you know, how this is a great thing for feminists that, you know, Christia Freeland was appointed finance minister, she's the first woman, blah, 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 blah. I don't read it that way. Christia Freeland has been taking over every single important file in this 
government, part because she's good, but I think what it really more says is that everybody else is pretty weak. This is now a cabinet with a very, very thin talent pool, and Christia Freeland apparently is the only good one left. I think it's easy to perceive that when she has taken over so many roles, but this is not a low talent group. Yeah, there just, just, just wasn't enough talent for uh, somebody else to take over finance minister. Like, I just, I just, I have a hard time seeing this as some kind of great win for feminism when it seems to be like, hey, you're the last person standing. You know what I mean? What's kind of odd to me is that feminism was an issue at all. The only reason that I think that feminism was an issue in my mind was because she was, Christy Freeland was suddenly subjected to a scrutiny and critiquing that I've never heard about any of the previous finance ministers that have all been male. And, you know, I point to Jim Flaherty, who was a Whitby, Ontario personal injury lawyer before he entered the Ontario government and then was a rookie MP and rookie cabinet minister when he was appointed finance minister. And today his name is on the Canada Finance Building. But I do think there is a fair question about, you know, is is Freeland being put in this role because you know, she's a strong cabinet minister who's going to um, challenge Trudeau on some of the spending, or is she being put in this role because she's a likable, popular loyalist who's going to essentially do what the prime minister tells her to do and spend freely? It's not really normal for a finance minister to have multiple jobs within cabinet. She's the deputy prime minister. That is presumably a pretty serious role. On top of that, Minister of Finance, that is also a very, very major portfolio. So I don't know. This just this just makes me think that they're kind of stretching her thin. I think it's a fair question to ask why they're doing that. To me, it's almost um, a natural role for Christia Freeland to take because she, of, of everyone in cabinet, uh, if we look at the issues around child care and what we're seeing the beginnings of some flutterings uh, about that there will be spending that will be much more directed towards a green agenda, child care, all of these sorts of things. I would argue that these might be exactly the kinds of things that Christopher Freeland entered politics in order to be able to achieve. So I actually see this as a natural and a natural progression in her political career. The question, I guess, will remain, will she remain as deputy prime minister? But I do think that she's amply prepared for this role. She's got strong experience on domestic and international policy issues. She was a proven negotiator on the USMCA and on CETA uh, and deeply knowledgeable about uh, the Canadian financial issues in, in industries. There is a lack of Bay Street experience, although I would argue that Bay Street experience can compromise someone who would have a strong financial direction. Yeah, but the reason why you put someone with Bay Street experience in when you're a progressive government is to calm Bay Street the hell down, right? Like that's that was always the, the reason behind Bill Morneau in that role. It was the idea of saying, okay, yes, I know that this government is planning lots of spending, but don't worry, we still have a pretty conservative hand at the rein. It's about social signaling. And that's also why I think that the conservatives could always get away with less experienced hands as the finance minister, because their sort of political ethos 
rightly or wrongly, was tied into these, these ideas of f- fiscal restraint. I'm not saying that's right. I just think that that's the signal that they're that they're sending, right? I think that the whole talk about Bay Street, once again, to me, is just painting this person who's extremely competent and extremely knowledgeable on financial policy and economic policy as like somehow she had to go and work in Toronto on Bay Street in order to, to take this role. So I just, I don't, I, I'm not hearing... Uh, I, I don't think that Bay Street is going to have the same kind of objections that you might expect if she were a would-be uh, Ontario personal injury lawyer. I mean, I think there's a reason why she's the breakout star of this cabinet. I also think that there's a reason why people are looking to her to potentially lead the party going forward. She's f- heads, heads and, and shoulders above the rest of the cabinet. And that's why you're right. She is an obvious choice for the finance minister. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't ask ourselves why, because as while she, while she's been extremely competent and able, she's also in previous scandals absolutely been a loyalist to Trudeau. So you know, in the moment when you have Bill Murnau skulking out of cabinet with a cloud over his shoulders because apparently he wasn't spend happy enough, there is some questions for me about how strong she's actually going to be in that file holding the line on spending that may may or may not be appropriate. I'm still going to suggest that what is going to be coming down the pipe in the next few months is we're going to be seeing issues around the spending that has already happened. And the, the Trudeau government is wanting to be able to distance themselves from some of the um, some of the controversies that are that are yet to emerge that they know are probably going to come and certainly that the Conservatives are looking for. But let's look at what is likely to be coming with Freeland in the finance ministry. You know, we've talked about childcare spending. We've talked about some of the opportunities or what might be considered on the right to be concerns about spending. What do you see? I think that you will probably not get a lot of traction about concerns about spending in the abstract. I mean, we're in the midst of a crisis. It makes sense to be funneling a lot of money into the economy. The way to focus the concern here is whether or not the spending is actually productive or useful stimulus or whether or not it's the type of spending that we're seeing, for example, like the Wii scandal would exemplify, although there's been a couple of scandals since then. You know, money that's essentially going to well-connected people um, within certain sectors of the economy that have connections to the to, to the liberal government at the highest levels. That's mm-hmm. the sort of spending that isn't productive. Like that's not stimulus spending. Mm-hmm. When the whole pandemic started, I was a big advocate of just like cut everyone a check, cut everyone in the country a check. And I was told there were, there were reasons why that literally could. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Not be done. So fine, whatever. So I'm all for throwing Canadians money because that's stimulus spending. But when you're hiding stimulus spending in ways that are 
beneficial to specific sectors of the economy and specific people in the economy that are well connected. That's not stimulus spending anymore. So that's that I think is going to be the the fine line that the conservatives are going to have to walk where the money might go. I, you know, I don't really have a problem with uh, stimulus spending that can be rationally tied to a, a pandemic response. I mean, as we've discussed, child care. You know, maybe this is this moment, the moment to be having this conversation about child care, elder care. It seems like lots of money is probably going to be going into elder care and health health spending. I think that we're probably going to be seeing some expansion of the CERB. I wouldn't shock me if you see the Trudeau government even try something really radical like a, a universal basic income. That wouldn't surprise me. Spending toward environmental gains. I mean, I think that is going to be harder to rationalize under a pandemic response, particularly if it's very radical or way beyond what they had promised in the last election. But I think that that's where you might see the the, the liberal government actually step out, because, in fact, they had already in their previous government committed over $60 billion into a green economy. And they had they had in the election committed to greening the economy and developing new innovation, funding new innovation and um, shifting, transitioning away from fossil fuels was and has been for years part of the liberal agenda. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. And I also don't think that most Canadians would consider it to be controversial. It will be controversial in Alberta. It will be controversial, controversial for the Conservative Party. I think it just becomes a question of scope, right? Like if we're talking about environmental spending, firstly, I'm I'm pretty deeply skeptical of any government that thinks that, you know, government money is going to fuel the innovation that will get us out of the fossil fuel economy. I don't think that that tends to be where innovation works most effectively. I, you know, I haven't delved into this enough to be able to make a comment on it so far, but it sounds like a lot of really good PR. But you know what? I'll put a pin in that for later. Again, would it shock me if they spend money on on greeny stuff? No, it wouldn't. As I said, it just becomes a question of scope. Um, if, if they think that they are going to radically transform the entire Canadian economy from the top down, uh, that I think would go beyond the scope of what they've promised previously and what and also beyond the scope of what's appropriate as a response to a pandemic. There's no sign of that. There's not nothing about that. Has well, we'll been see. Even hinted at. <laughs> we'll so, see. <laughs> so that's a a to be determined. <laughs> to be determined. Let's 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 come back to that in a couple of weeks. Let's see what they actually announce. I'm holding my judgment. It could very well be a pretty reasonable speech. Just judging from the language that they're using, sort of hinting at some of this stuff, I'm thinking it's probably going to be more radical than I am going to be strictly comfortable with. But I'm I'm going to keep an open mind about it. The simple truth is, Donald Trump failed to protect America. No one will be safe in Biden's America. Fires are burning and we have a president who fans the flames. Get out and vote, because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. And something that's been top of mind for me, I've, in fact, I'm just mesmerized by it, is the American election. And uh, <laughs> I, also, I also feel that people don't really grasp in Canada how catastrophic this could potentially be for Canada, depending on how this election plays out. Look, there's an upside and there's a downside. The upside is that Biden is so far in the war for the summer polling so far ahead of Trump that we could be looking at a Walter Mondale style blowout for the Republicans. For the conservative sources that I'm reading in the U.S., 
they're talking about, okay, do we need to totally burn the Republican Party to the ground in order to rebuild it? Or can we reform it from within? Like, that's the kind of internal dialogue that's happening within the conservative movement. There is a, a real sense of we're done now. You know, like this, this isn't this isn't going well. That said, is it possible that Donald Trump could win? I have ugly feelings in my heart and I'm afraid. Yeah, I have a lot of fear. I feel exactly the same that you do, Jen, that that when you look at Biden's advantage across the board, at just as almost as the generic Democratic candidate, he is polling so far ahead and he's ahead in almost every swing state. But Hillary was ahead in those states and was polling ahead in those states, too, before Election Day. And there's so much that hangs in the balance. And of course, everybody is on the edge of their seats about what will he do, even if if defeated, if Trump is reelected? I think it's a deep, deep concern for Canada. And the biggest concern, uh, I mean, there are so many, but one of the biggest concerns that I have is that Donald Trump has no real plan to deal with COVID. And uh, as, as Biden says, until you deal with the virus, you can't get the economy restarted. And I think that a lot of us are kind of floating along on this buffer of government spending that has lulled us into a kind of complacency about just how disastrous the economy is, both in the United States and Canada. We're just a satellite economy to the United States. We are so dependent on that economy prospering and growing, and it is in terrible shape, and it's not getting any better anytime soon. As far as I can tell, the United States is veering toward a state of civil unrest. And I fully expect to see more outbreaks of armed violence on the streets. As a result of this, you're going to have a president that is fueling that unrest while trying to claim a benefit from it. He's going to be inciting a lot of these far right groups while at the same time saying, look at Joe Biden, he's not going to stand up for your property rights. He's not going to do or say anything while the Black Lives Matter protests come and burn down your home. I could see how Trump could very effectively leverage that message to an absolutely horrific second term. And right, that that would be disastrous for Canada. I think that what we may well be seeing and what people are very afraid of is that this emergence of the alt-right armed people in the streets shooting and the and the violence that will be coming that this may be a complete breakdown of civil society in the in the cities and that's what you're pointing to. Trump very clearly is looking to benefit from that. It would be very interesting to me to get a historian to compare the level of civil unrest that's happening now to what happened in 1968. I remember 1968. I can tell you, I mean, I was a kid, but I can tell you there weren't guns in the streets. There weren't militias. Well, and and then actually you're pointing to something really interesting, which is the whole rise of the weatherman movement and a lot of the radicalism. There were bombings. There were a lot of bombings through the 70s. There was a lot of that kind of thing. And yet it didn't seem to have an impact or if any impact that it had. Look at uh, what happened to George McGovern um, in, I believe that was the 1980 election when they were completely and utterly wiped out. You're right. A historian would be good to bring along. But I don't recall it being like this. I am increasingly worried. Like I don't put the odds at this as high, 
but I also don't put them at zero. I think that there's like a 10% chance that this escalates into an actual civil war, mm-hmm. in which case, or like a low-level guerrilla kind of warfare thing happening. I mean, does America continue to succeed as a unified nation? I mean, we already saw a little bit of this uh, during COVID. We saw sections of America form kind of That's quasi-independent right. yeah blocks right so are those going to become the 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 precursors to a much more divided nation state and what does that mean for canada and how much is that going to affect for instance i see this as a as an issue for canadian conservatism because the re-election of trump is really the validation of trumpism in the united states and to me it's inevitable that that's going to mean we've been seeing little bits of it in the Canadian, in the Conservative Party of Canada. We see bits of it on the ground. You know, we see indications of that. We saw as he was leaving, Andrew Scheer was saying, telling people to go read the post-millennial, which is absolutely a mouthpiece of that. And the publisher of the, of the post-millennial was standing right beside Aaron O'Toole at the victory party. So There is a presence there. And so I do see this more as a challenge to the Conservative Party of Canada and to conservatism in Canada if Trumpism is really becomes the order of the day in the United States. I think that's totally silly and for a couple of reasons. One, I think that the alt-right as a serious political movement in Canada was repudiated with Maxime Bernier. They just don't have the numbers in this country. Say what you will about the post-millennial. I think that there are some very legitimate criticisms to be leveled at that uh, organization. And I think that Shear's praise of them in his outgoing speech came across as juvenile and ridiculous. But that organization is not alt-right. Secondly, I would just point out that, you know, if anything, even if Trump does win again, there is no mainstream conservative that's looking at what's happening in the United States and the potential, you know, state of violence and dissolution that is facing that country and thinks, yeah, let's mimic that in Canada. That's a great thing that we want to do here. In fact, I think that if anything, the larger, broader effects that Trump is provoking in America is extremely anti-conservative, firstly. And secondly, it's not appealing. Nobody looks at what's happening in America right now and thinks, yeah, we, we really want more violence in our streets. Like if anything, if anything, it's a warning. Isn't there an ad out from Wexit now saying that they want to join the United States? Yeah, there is. But the Wexit people aren't conservatives. In fact, the Wexit people openly repudiate the the mainstream conservative movement. They're a fringe group of people and they don't represent conservatives. But that's, I think, what what I think is the challenge is going to be is to keep a lid on all of that stuff. It's going to enter through social media and we're seeing, you know, the whole QAnon thing with Facebook and, and that sort of thing. We're going to see those influences there. I don't think that there's, I agree with you that the Conservative Party as a party doesn't want to give voice to these. Having said that, we had Carrie Lynn Findlay tweeting uh, QAnon. She's clearly gone down the rabbit hole. You know, citing the whole Soros anti-Semitic tripe about uh, Christia Freeland. So I'm just saying this is going to present a challenge to the Conservative Party and to the to its leadership. I think it is, but I think that also the Conservative Party has learned a lot of lessons over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And one is that pandering to these people is a losing proposition. I think you're right about Maxime Bernier. I think that Canada has a fundamentally different 
social makeup than the United States. But these influences are there. But I get back to my original point that I agree with everything that you say about the looming and clear and present danger of a breakdown in the United States. I still go back to our economy depends on that country. And they've already poured, I think, between U.S. Treasury and um, congressional spending $6 trillion into that economy to keep it going. And what did they do? They totally, that was $6 trillion wasted. Why? Because they did nothing about bringing COVID under control. So they're going to have to spend vastly more. They're going to be in much, much worse financial condition. And their economy is just going to be in the doldrums until this crisis passes. And even after that, their their recovery is going to take so long. And that is going to impact our bottom line. So those are the main things that are on our radar for this fall. I'm looking forward to what's coming up ahead. Is there anything that we missed, Jen? Anything not as obvious? couple of things. One, I would be watching uh, Governor General Julie Pitt's uh, tenure if she can continue to last in her particular role. Apparently, she's kind of bad at it. Bill Blair apparently has uh, in some kind of embroiled in some kind of controversy on over solitary confinement. I think if we talked about Christia Freeland's being hands down the best uh, minister in cabinet, Bill Blair, I think, gets uh, top marks for worst. I'm looking to see what's going to happen with the defund the police movements, whether or not that's going to continue to go anywhere. Sandy, anything else? It'll be interesting to watch all of those on on the Julie Payette, the governor general. My whole feeling on all of this is how much do we really need a governor general? But I, that that's opening a whole can of worms, all of the above and more. Getting rid of the governor general is a lot harder than just getting rid of Julie Payette. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> Here's my prediction. Support for the monarchy in Canada when Queen Elizabeth passes um, and Prince Charles becomes King Charles. Watch for the monarchy to support for the monarchy to fade. But you don't need to support the monarchy to realize that trying to rejig our entire system around a non-monarchical is just is just more trouble than it's worth. You know, this is this is not for no. September. This is not a September issue. This, <laughs> this is, is we need to get like a hardcore. We need to get a hardcore a monarchist issue. on the show to just like defend the monarchy. I just I want one. Now it's time to open up the mailbag. So today's question comes from Patrick Fisher on Twitter. He's asking, I'd be curious to hear you two discuss the voting system alternatives and how it could change elections and outcomes. Jen, take it away. No, you nerd. You electoral reform nerd. No one gives a shit about electoral reform except... Plug your ears, Yeah, except deep, deep sort of political nerds who like attend liberal party convention plenary sessions on the topic. Okay. Like we, we, we dealt with this. We dealt with this in 2017. The liberals held a whole committee around it. They ultimately decided that, uh, yeah, sure. Enough people might be interested in changing the electoral system in theory until you actually start to go down this rabbit hole and have a conversation about whether or not it's going to be single transferable ballot or first past the post or whatever else kind of crazy system you want. And then everybody starts to fall apart on it. And guess what? Not enough people prioritize this as an issue. I think a polling numbers at the time came out and realized that something like 3% of Canadians put this on their top anything as issues they actually cared about. Nobody cares about this one 
but politics nerds. Oh, and then the BC, BC held a referendum on this that failed. No one cares about this but politics nerds. No one's going to expend any capital on it. I am not debating electoral reform. Come at me, fucking Twitter. I'm not. No, sorry. Don't come at me, Twitter. Don't at me. Not interested. It's a nerd topic. It's a rabbit hole. It's a waste of time. BC's referendum. Nobody could understand the question. That's why. But nobody's ever going to understand the question because the whole issue is so ridiculously complicated. I think this highlights the challenge. Actually, just after the uh, 2019 election, Angus Reid was showing polling support for electoral reform at about 70 percent. So people do want it. But I think, Jane, you're right, is that they don't agree on what they want as an alternative. And electoral reform, although it is popular, is not a driving issue. But I did take some time to our listener, Patrick, and to everyone else who's interested. I did look into, well, what would have changed um, in the 2019 election had we gone to some form of proportional representation and not going into, well, which form? Um, And the Liberals uh, would have lost about 45 seats. The NDP would have gained about 30 seats. The Green Party of Canada would have gained about 19 seats from their current three seats. The Bloc would have lost seats and the Conservative Party of Canada would have lost seats. So basically what we would would see here would be a significantly expanded in role for both the NDP and the Green Party. So sorry, Sandy, your, your, your analysis suggests that even in a that the party that won the popular vote would have lost seats in a proportional representation system. Yes. OK. The conservatives would have lost seats because they're both the liberals and the conservatives in a first past the post. They they benefit from a first past the post. Both of them get more seats probably in every election than they would get in a proportional representation. Look, I mean, the real problem with this is that there would be no Liberal Party or Conservative Party or NDP Party in a proportional representation system because the incentive to have big tent parties dissolves in a proportional representation system. All of these parties wind up factionalizing. That's what we see all over the world. I'm sorry, Patrick Fisher. Thank you very much for 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 writing in. I just obviously uh, am passionately uh, worked up about electoral reform. That is not your fault. And I appreciate you enormously. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can tweet at us at Oppocast or send us an email at oppo at canadalandshow.com. Well, that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at Oppocast. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.